Well, good morning, everybody. If you want to get your phones or if you have a hardcover Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And while you're doing that, I'm going to ask you some questions to kind of jog our memory. It's been a, I feel like it's been a while since I've been in the book of Samuel. Who remembers at the end of the book of Kings? What was the problem that the author identified was with Israel? Does anyone remember? What was the problem? Pardon? Oh, that's what Samuel said, this book of Judges. The book of Judges said, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. Okay, then... Immediately after, we get into the book of Samuel, and Samuel tells us about how kingship started. As Peter said, rightly, that Samuel identified when there is a king, there's going to be a problem. The king is going to take, take, take. It's going to be like going back into Egypt. It's going to be like having a pharaoh over you. And so far in Samuel, we've traced how Saul was the first king, then he lost his kingship. Last week, Murray led us through 2 Samuel 7, when David has promised that he will have a kingdom that will last forever. Now, that all seems very good, doesn't it? You think, okay, this guy David, the man after God's own heart, he surely must be the type of king that Israel wants. A number of commentators have noted here that this account in 2 Samuel 11, it's like a new Adam. It's like a new fall. In Genesis chapter 3, what was the fruit described as? Was it? It looked what? Pleasing to the eye. It looked good, didn't it? Yeah. In a similar way, Bathsheba is described as being literally in the Hebrew good or beautiful. And David takes what is illicit and it causes a whole range of consequences. This is a moment of David's fall. This is a moment that We see that he, even though he is the man after God's own heart, even he is not infallible. And so this question that the author of Samuel is asking implicitly is like, like, who is going to be the righteous king of Israel? And today's narrative is going to show us it's not going to be David. It needs to be someone different. So if you have your phones or your Bibles there, let's quickly just read through parts of Samuel. It's a long narrative so i'll read parts and sort of explain parts as we go along so let's begin here in the spring at the time when kings go off to war david sent joab out with the king's men and the whole israel army they destroyed the ammonites and besieged rabba but david remained in jerusalem one evening david got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace from the roof he saw a woman bathing The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone out to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant." Now, when the Israelites wanted a king, what did they want? They wanted a king to do what? Fight their battles. That was one of the reasons they wanted a king. And now here is David. David's raised up. We know that he is a warrior. 
We know he's a mighty man of valor. Saul only killed thousands. David kills tens of thousands. Now, at this point in his life, David's probably about 50 years old. Not that old, not that young. So why isn't he out fighting the battles? Best guess just seems to be David has consumed all this power. God has blessed him with his kingdom. He has gotten lazy. And there's a key word that you'll hear repeatedly throughout this narrative. David sends. Sends messengers out back and forth. People do his bidding, even though they know it's wrong. David has all power and authority. No one can question him because he is king. As king, he can send his men out to fight and sit back in his palace and lounge around. And as David is there in his palace, he gets up one evening and there he sees a woman bathing. Now Bathsheba has an interesting, I guess, history of interpretation. Some Christians will say she is this temptress, seductress who deliberately bathed herself to get David's attention. I would say, well, actually, there was this sort of unspoken rule in the ancient Near East that if you had a two-story house, the higher up you are, you can see down upon your neighbors, yeah? It's easier to do that. And so this idea was that if at bathing time, if you had a two-story house, you're not supposed to be looking down on people bathing because there was no privacy, there was no showers. It's the only time that she could do this. So it's sort of two ways of looking at it. But the point of the narrative is, whether what Bathsheba's intentions were or not, the point of this narrative is to show David here is cast in a bad light. And what's even worse, we're told here this sort of random facts about her family origin. She's told that she is the daughter of Elam. Now, Chiu and I were like, who's Elam? I have no idea who that is. Elam is actually one of David's closest friends. He is one of his 30 warriors. And what's even worse is Elam is the son of Arthur, if I can say this right, Api Tolfel, who is one of David's closest advisors. So here she is, the granddaughter and daughter of two of David's closest friends, knowing that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah is also part of one of David's 30. I think surely this would be a warning bell. This is the daughter of someone who I'm really, really close with, and she's the husband of someone I'm really, really close with. But it doesn't seem to worry David. David is king with all power, He takes, and he takes Bathsheba. And we're not told much, the narrative just said, brings her into the palace. And there she goes back home, and she conceives. And Bathsheba only says, there's only two words in the narrative. I am pregnant. That creates a spiral of disaster. So I thought this was the perfect crime. Now, how is David, the one who has, I guess, unquestionable authority, going to get out of this? So he does some more sending. He sends for Uriah, the Hittite, to come from the battle. And there, I'll kind of just skip through this. Um, David's plan is simple. Get Uriah to come to the palace. 
So, and there he asks all these questions about, oh, how's the battle going? What's, uh, you know, how are the soldiers feeling? But what he wants is he wants Uriah to go to his house, sleep with Bathsheba, and then people will think, okay, he is the father. Again, this is a great little scheme to hide his crime. Now, Uriah, he is powerless to ignore the king's command to come back home. But what he does here, and there's a bit of debate here whether Uriah actually knows what's going on, he refuses to go into his house, refuses to see Bathsheba. Because as soldiers of Yahweh, they were to remain ritually pure and not sleep with women in battle. Now, this also creates an interesting contrast because Uriah is what? Uriah the, what's his nation? Hittite. That's not Israelite, is it? That's a Hittite, a Gentile. So here we have a Gentile, he's not born as Israelite, acting more like an Israelite than the very king of Israel himself. And David tries again. He tries to get Uriah drunk. Even in his drunken state, Uriah remains more faithful to Torah than David does. Okay, so the situation's getting very, very desperate now. Adultery is a capital offense in Torah. Someone needs to die. And David doesn't want to be the one to die. So it's not David who's going to die, that it needs to be <clears throat> Uriah. So David pans this letter to his general Joab. And just to rub salt in the wounds, Uriah is the one to, who holds the letter that's sent to Joab, the general saying, send Uriah to the front lines. Now, what's happening at this moment is in the, the city of Rabbah, the, it's besieged. And so the Israelite army has the city surrounded. So no one can come in, no one can come out. And in siege warfare, the idea is that you starve out the city eventually. But a city that is besieged has one very good weapon of attack. If I'm up here hiding on the tall wall... An army gets close, what do you do? You throw things. That's about the only defense you have. So wisdom is that if you're besieging a city, you don't bring your army close to the walls. This is exactly what Joab does. Sends Uriah and a group of men up to the walls and they get hit by some stones from the enemies. Now, we start to see this circle of sin, this ramification that happens. David is told that Uriah has been killed, but so has fellow Israelites. So I see this wave. Sin doesn't just impact your life. It impacts on others' life. And it has all these flowing consequences. This is the idea. David is the king of Israel, the representative between Yahweh and the people, kind of taking on this new Adam role. Just like Adam's sin, one man committed a sin, we all suffer. In a similar way, David, this, this narrative is showing David's one sin has this impact for all of Israel. And how true is that in our lives? We may think our sin is hidden or won't impact anyone. But there is a being that sees 
all. And we're told here in verse 27, after Bathsheba hears that um, Uriah is dead, she mourns for him, comes into the palace. David brings her into his house and she becomes his wife and bears a son. Seems like David's gotten away of it. But, there's always a but in biblical narrative. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. David may wield authority. May, David may be able to send messengers back and forth. May be able to send the, the deaths of men. Do whatever he wants. But there is one person even the king is accountable to. And that is God. And when Nathan the prophet comes, he, very, very shrewd, he uses a parable. And this is from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan comes to David and he says this parable. He says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food and drink from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who came to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, a man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing, had no pity on him. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. That takes a lot of guts. Uh, uh, we're, we're used to ragging on our politicians. You know, if Anthony Albanese was here and we sort of ragged him off, we, we can get away with that. Culturally, that's acceptable. The ancient world, you, you don't rag on the king. You don't tell a king his faults. David could have very well as easily had turned to Nathan and say, you're dead. Nathan boldly tells David, you are the man. You are the man in this parable. You have taken something that did not belong to you and you deserve death. Now let's just um, focus on ourselves a little bit here. Let's put ourselves into this narrative. Now it would be easy to say, and it's a very right application, is to say this is a warning about lust. It's normally aimed at men. This is normally a problem that men struggle with. Particularly now in the 21st century with pornography and other ways to have illicit sex. Say it's a warning about, hey man, keep your eyes pure. Don't look at things that you shouldn't be. Don't sleep with women that you're not supposed to. Don't look at pornography. That's an easy way, an easy interpretation, a right way. Because most of us here, we're not kings. We're not calling women to come sleep with. So it's easy to dismiss, well, that's sort of not really much application for me. But one thing I think we can all agree upon is that each and every one of us are takers. Perhaps we take from people their dignity as image bearers of God and we look upon their body, bodies lustfully, tools to enhance our own self-gratification. We take from people and we harbour murderous, unforgiving intent. We take from people and we allow bitterness and gossip to rule. We take from people when we bully them in order to make ourselves feel superior. 
We take from people when we use them as tools to further our reputation and our prestige. We literally take from people when we rob and steal from them. And countless ways we take from people in order to better ourselves. Anyways, this is a narrative about the fall of David and and the need to find a greater and better king. But if we place ourselves into the role of David and think about our own equivalent of Bathsheba's and the things that we take, we recognize that each and every one of us have illicitly taken things that do not belong to us. And unfortunately, this is the model that was given to us from our very first parents. Adam and Eve had everything, just like David. God had given him everything. One forbidden object, they want to take that. And with us, God has given us everything we need. And yet, shamefully, I'm part of this because I'm part of the sinful, fallen, broken world. We take what does not belong to us. In a sense, when we do that, just like Adam and Eve, in a sense like David, we're trying to become God. To God is above us. His throne is there. We're trying to stand or sit on that throne, trying to be above God. That's one of the warnings, this narrative. It doesn't even matter who is the man after God's own heart. We are all fallen, broken creatures. And we see this narrative, as I mentioned before, this ripple effect of David's sin. And on a smaller level, there's a ripple effect on our sin, what that does to the people in our lives. Nathan's warning to David, it's harsh. From verse 7, I'll continue on, it says, You are the man, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you as king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, to your master's wife and your arms. I gave you Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed them with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Oh, hello. You want to come up? (laughs) No, it's good. I love having having little visitors on the stage. So it's it's a harsh warning. David did it in secret. God's going to do it in broad daylight. David's empire starts to fall apart from this moment. Now, there's a key difference here. Saul, if you remember, well, he didn't actually preach about it in the podcast. Mario and I spoke about it, but Saul's fall. Saul sinned. He, he didn't listen to the directives that the prophet Samuel gave him. And, and when Saul sinned, instead of repenting, he kind of just made excuses. David here commits a much worse atrocity. What's he do? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. 
In fact, if you do have your phones open still, you can turn to Psalm 51. At the beginning of Psalm 51, we're told here, a psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And David pours his heart out in this psalm. And it's a psalm that Christians and Jews use to find repentance. This is the key difference between a David and a Saul. Between really anyone with their sin. When David is called out, he repents. And he writes this beautiful psalm, recognizing God's mercy upon him. God washing his guilt away, purifying him. David recognized that he is so sinful. Even before birth, even before his mother conceived, he was born in sin. But he knows that through God, he will be washed clean, whiter than snow. That's, that's the good thing. David is forgiven. David repents. But there's still consequences of sin. And this is a part of narrative I struggle with tremendously. No word to describe it. It's, it's a very, very difficult passage of Scripture. This child that David bore with Bathsheba, he's going to die. There's kind of two ways of looking at it. There's sort of one view that the, the, the punishment for adultery is death. And so someone had to die, and we recognize that Uriah has died, that other soldiers have died because of that. But the child bears David gills, like a, a vicarious in place of David. The child is killed. It tones for his sin. The other view, which probably feels slightly more comfortable with, is that death is part of the order of this world. David's sins are removed. But it doesn't stop the fact that this child is going to die. At least this question, which I always wonder, is like, wow, okay, if God allowed this innocent life to die, which he didn't do it after any wrong of his own, well, why did God Uriah and his fellow soldiers to die? Why did God allow Bathsheba to be abused? She All she did that night was wash herself following Torah to cleanse herself from her monthly, her, her monthly period. And, and there are these consequences of sin. Well, the Bible doesn't answer these questions, but shows us just the deep impact of sin, that rippling effect. And while it's not ever written in the Bible, it's kind of implicitly implied, well, how is the impact of sin going to be addressed? While it's beyond a 25-minute 20, sermon to do this, what we can do, and this is the point of this series, is to show how Samuel points us to Jesus. David took a lot from Bathsheba. Took a husband. And for many centuries, he's kind of been characterized as this awful, slut, sort of like woman who whored herself out. But ultimately, what, what this narrative points us to is Jesus. Jesus, the one who comes not to serve, but to be served. The one to go out and fight our battles. Jesus we'd never find in the springtime when kings are going out to warfare. He's not lounging around in his palace, taking from his subjects. Instead, Jesus gives. And he gives so much that he gave his life for us. And the Jesus we encounter in Scripture, as we know at Christmas time, not born in a palace, 
He's born in a manger. Grows up in this tiny little town of Nazareth, which has such a poor reputation that we're told that in, in the Gospel of John, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus wanders around in the, the muck and the mire of the brokenness of this world. That's the type of king he's called to be. In fact, one of my favorite passages well, favorite teachings from Jesus comes from Luke 22, 24. When the disciples are arguing about who is going to be the greatest, Jesus tells them the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the one who serves. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That is the type of king we are looking for. That's what's so wonderful about Christmas. It gives us a chance to reflect upon that. I suppose the question I have today, friends, is do you know this king? The king that didn't come to take, 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 but to give, 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 to restore our dignity and to give us life and hope. Do you know this king? that can wash away our sins. doesn't matter how sin-stained you are. doesn't matter how much shame you feel. And David committed a lot of sins. Adultery, murder, deception. He was able to find mercy in God, able to declare that God would wash away his sins, make him whiter than snow, giving him back joy. Do you know this king? And if today you don't know this king, or today perhaps you feel like, oh, I can't go to God because of the sin in my life, give you now a chance to pray to that God. To ask him, if you haven't, to become the Lord and Savior of your life. And if you just feel like you're disconnected, you just feel like there's a block between you and God, there's a chance to ask him to make that right. Read through that psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. Because as David writes here, he says here in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There is meant to be a joy. There's nothing joyful about sin. It may seem like there is. But in Jesus there is life. And there is hope. So I encourage you, I'm going to give you some space now. If you need to pray to let Jesus into your heart, into your life for that first time, or if you need space to repent. Do it now. Now I'll be hanging out the back of the prayer corner at the end of the service. I know there will be myself and others from the prayer team that would love to pray over you if you've done that. So I'll give you a minute now just to pray amongst yourselves. Then I'll close off and invite the band back up.
Our Jesus, we give you thanks that you have forgiven us, that it was through your shed blood we have new life. Each and every one of us who were sinners, who had committed terrible things before you, Lord, can now find life, hope, and freedom. And Lord, all you ask for is for us to repent, to change our lives. Spirit, I pray that you break down the strongholds and those barriers in our life. Lord, each and every one of us act like David at some point in our lives. We have taken from people. Lord, I pray that, especially in this Christmas season, to mirror the example of Jesus and to become a giver, to be a servant leader. To not be like the kings of the Gentiles who lord it over, but to be a humble servant and to embrace Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. So, Father, I just pray your blessing upon us. Spirit, I ask for your help in breaking down chains and us being obedient and walking in the new light and hope that Jesus offers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.